Hey everyone, please listen to this important message that Henry has to share. Hello, my mama says bad words. So please make sure to wear your earmuffs for this week's episode. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to season two of Mom Jeans. Ah, we did it. We're back. We did it. We took a few weeks off for this summer. No, we took some time (laughs) off and we regrouped and we lived life with kids. And we are back to recording, though, very quickly. So we are so excited. Suffering in the heat. That's what happened basically over here. That's That's what you get for moving to Texas. I know. Ah. (laughs) No income tax and humidity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, anyway, welcome back to season two. This season, we are so excited because we are opening up the platform for those that are feeling inspired to share their stories about their body and healing. We have been planning this episode way back in January 2020. However, with everything that 2020 has brought us as a world, we feel that now is really the best time to continue to open up the platform and have a variety of stories. And we are really excited to be chatting about this and for this season this fall. Yay! So we understand that we are really just scraping the surface when it comes to opening up the platform for voices. But our hope is that by hearing a few parents share their story, This will motivate our listeners to make positive change in their lives, increase their healing, and inspire others, or get more education on what else is needed to be done to fully heal their body relationship. This season will be from a variety of parents, not just specific to moms and not just specific to cisgendered or same-sex marriages, But we believe that lived experience is evidence. So each episode is evidence of someone's experience of navigating this world in their body that we feel is so important to share. Yeah. So if you listened back in season one, we tackled the science of our genes with a G and offered encouragement to find peace in our genes with a J. So even as we spoke from our perspective and heard from amazing guest experts, we also knew that each listener was hearing and interpreting our thoughts based on their own experience and narratives. As clinicians, we have sat with hundreds and hundreds of clients in the sacred space of vulnerability and doing challenging work in their healing process. So we know that every single individual's experience and everyone's definition of recovery and food freedom is unique as well. Our relationships with our bodies and with food is just that. It's a relationship. It ebbs and flows, has boundaries and flexibility, has fun experiences and painful conflict. 
We are so passionate about this field of work and this season because we know the power of the healing journey and how sharing one's story can be a beautiful step towards deeper healing. So we wanted to share a quote that we love by Sonia Renee Taylor, author of Your Body is Not an Apology, and that is, Our body shame is a story whose chapters began being written in some of our earliest memories. Our story made us believe we would never have love. We would never be good enough. We would always be rejected. Decades later, we find ourselves still stuck, the body shame story on loop in our minds. We do not have to keep that story. We absolutely have the power to turn in that cheap and tawdry tale and make a new story. We have the power to change the narrative of body shame in our lives. The good news is we are the authors of our own lives. Before we launch our season of stories, we wanted to bring on an expert that specializes in a therapeutic technique called narrative therapy. This method of therapy is powerful in helping people deconstruct the discourses and problems they might face in order to construct their new preferred story. We thought our listeners may want to hear from a therapist who practices primarily from this form of psychotherapy so they can understand the power in their thoughts, narratives, and storytelling. Yeah, so today we are going to welcome Amber Kramer. She's a graduate from National University and an associate marriage and family therapist at the California Family Institute, working under Dr. Chris Hoff in Costa Mesa, California. Prior to becoming a therapist, Amber worked as a hairstylist for seven years. It was through her time as a stylist that her passion for helping others became evident. After having both of her children, Eli and Easton, she decided to pursue her career as a marriage and family therapist. As a narrative therapist, she approaches therapy through a collaborative and a non-pathologizing lens where the client is the expert in their own life. She works alongside the client to face the problems that are stopping them from living their preferred life. We are excited to welcome Amber and learn more about narrative therapy and pick her brain on steps to healing those tricky cognitive discourses. And she will explain what the heck that means. (laughs) Off we go. Welcome to our episode, Amber. Thank you so much for joining us. Ah, thank you for having me. So can you please tell our listeners about the basics of narrative therapy and why we're even doing an entire season of sharing one story? Because we believe it's impactful for healing, but we're so curious for you to put your expertise on this topic for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, narrative therapy is based, is a collaborative approach, and it's based off the principle that people organize their lives families, their relationships, careers through story. And so if you back it up a little bit, like to first wave psychology, right, they often um, viewed the the client or the person as problematic. So in narrative therapy, it's really, we look at it as in the problem is the problem, the person is not the problem. And that the problems that people are facing in their lives are heavily influenced Um, by the culture that we live in and enforced by our society, our families, our, you know, clinicians, our educators, um, medical staff, right? And unknowingly, but that's what it's enforced by. And so sharing one story can be really impactful for healing because, well, for starters, just having someone uh, witness your story, right? With in a space, like hold space that's free of judgment and assumptions and fixing might be something that they haven't had the chance to experience before. And so I always like to say where it's um, 
it's not like sitting with a friend at coffee, right? Like when you're sitting with a friend, you're kind of going back and forth and there might be some advice giving, which is fine because you're sitting with your friend, but that's not what this therapy is about. So you won't find advice in here. So what I remember is that my therapist, the thing that stood out to me is my therapist said this one hour, right, is all about you and how to me, that's pretty amazing as a human to have that one hour be all about me to share my story and have someone hold that space. And so um, as a therapist, so just like when, when people are sharing their story as the therapist, I'm looking for times that uh, the person or relationship stood up to or stepped away from the problem. And we get to highlight those moments and those moments that are highlighted can be pretty empowering and encourage uh, the folks to move forward. And so, and I think probably one of the biggest pieces of narrative is that um, I believe that the client is the expert in their own lives. And so it takes my expert role out that's left out the door. And that way the client has a chance to develop, rewrite and reauthor their own story. So as a dietitian, I'm hearing that, that you did a fabulous job of explaining it. But for the, the person that's listening that isn't in our world, that's like, in a nutshell, it's basically coming into therapy and sharing your story. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So it's coming into therapy, sharing your story. And then um, I guess what I missed was the part where we use externalized language. So I guess a little example is, right? If someone comes in and says, um, I'm an anxious person, we would turn that into like the anxiety. So how is the anxiety showing up in your life? Because if someone is sick, if someone has an illness, whether it's cancer or anything else, they're not coming in and saying, I am cancer, Mm. right? You have cancer. And so it's, we remove that from their identity. Does that yeah. Well, we do that a lot with the eating disorder in that recovery process for clients. We call it the eating disorder. Some people call it Ed. And so we've externalized an eating disorder in, in our in a lot of the our field. But I love that you're bringing that to other things, to anxiety, to depression, to, and then also to potentially just more general body dysmorphia or diet culture, kind of externalizing all of that versus all the internalizing that we do that leads us to our disordered body image. Right. Well, so, you know, I think about in the work that I do where, like, I really try to assist clients in saying, yes, you know, the eating disorder or the weight bias is not your identity. So, like, clients coming in and saying, I feel fat, I am fat, and maybe you want to claim fat as that identity as a form of empowerment, sure, But not saying like, well, my doctor told me I need to lose weight. So I guess that I am now this, that that becomes my identity. So I like how it's flipping it out and going, okay, like that is that weight stigma that I experience. That is the eating disorder that I struggle with. I am not an eating disorder, right? And also at the same time, specifically with eating disorders, I am constantly having clients take take ownership for their behaviors, right? Like the eating disorder isn't this being that is just like, like happening outside of you. Like you are the one making the choices. Now, I think with what Rachel and I are trying to have at this season is that kind of family legacies and weight 
bias and stigmas that um, you've experienced in your history, how that affects you as a person today, and really trying to rewrite that story. And so I love that we're chatting about this. That was my long-winded Oh, yeah, I love that. And I love that. And I love that it's uh, that you brought up the legacy, right? Because I mean, it can happen for so long without us noticing that it's there or without us like it's, I always ask, like, how are we, how are you participating in this? Right. And it's not to insert blame, but it's just how are you colluding with the eating disorder? How are you participating with the eating disorder? Um, because it invites in some personal agency, which is also empowering, right? Because you get to make a decision as to what you want to do and how you want to move through this world. I think it's good to point out the fine line between choice and then why we're bringing you on to discuss narrative therapy because so much of the family legacy becomes this subtle messaging that we don't even realize we're continuing to like act out over and over and reenact these family traumas and these belief systems. So I'm curious, what are some of the common ways like of thinking or that the narration that become obstacles to the healing process that people may, may not even realize as they're working through their story or living out their story. Yeah. So people are multi-storied, right? And at times, some of those stories can become problematic. And so let's say those problem stories like the not good enough stories, right? They have a way of dominating or taking over the stories about people's capabilities their skills and competencies. And so those problem stories dominate or dominant stories, sorry, are socially constructed by our society, right? Which is a lot of what narrative is, right? We believe that it's a social construct. So many problems are socially constructed. And so um, they're constructed by our society, our culture, our family, and those stories dominate or dismiss the stories of wisdom and knowledge. So I'm going to use the example, I know we're talking about um, eating disorders, but I'm going to quickly use a parenting example if that's okay with you. And so, for example, the problem stories get, like a lot of them get developed or formed around parenting, right? Like the, the I'm not a good enough mother. I don't have it together. I'm falling short as a parent. I'm falling short as an employee, as an individual. I've let myself go and so on. And so those are the examples of the problem stories that often blind individuals from their skills and capabilities as a parent and as a human being. So what we really need to be asking is where those dominant stories come from and by whom they're being spread and implemented by. Was it by the society we live in, by our family, our friends, our educators? So again, as a clinician and an Arab therapist, my job is to reintroduce people to the actual lived experiences of knowledge, strength, and wisdom. So recalling those experiences. But really, I mean, we're policing ourselves, right? When those messages are coming in and we're trying to live up to something, that's when we start policing ourselves and internalizing those, those dominant stories. I love that so much. I'm like, oh. I know you look deep in thought. I'm like, should we move on? Or Rachel looks like her brain is spinning so much. I think the policing yourself is where I am sitting right now because I think when we when we talk with so many people and we listen to their stories, we do hear that. We hear, I had this inner wisdom. I had this thought, but I felt like if I acted that out or if I became confident in my body or if I advocated for myself 
and spoke my needs, then I would receive judgment, critique, feedback. It wouldn't be socially acceptable, etc. So I learned to police myself. I learned to filter it. And in that process of filtering, what happens to people? What happens to their their confidence or their um, inner dialogue or their self-esteem? Well, it gets diminished or it gets questioned, right? Or, I mean, there's always going to be a risk when you, when you let go of the fear, you let go of whatever might, the thing that you might be facing, right? There will always be a risk. And so the risk is what? Oh, you might receive backlash from your family. You might receive backlash from your friends, from society, right? Like society says, like, the perfect picture is this. And if we're over here saying, no, like, I'm good. I like the way I look. Like you're, you're going to receive backlash, but like, oh, you do, right? Even, even by your doctor, even by those that we're supposed to rely on. And so that's the risk. And so what happens in that is that because you were trying to live up to like what society says in the policing, our confidence in ourselves and making our own decisions, we question it. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many clients I sit down with that are trying to live in a world that doesn't accept their bodies and we're talking about it and it's just like how often do you go through a day a week a month where someone doesn't make a comment about your body or encourage weight loss or tell you give you nutrition advice and most often the answer is never 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 do i go through a day where someone doesn't just offer me advice or tell me the strategy of how they've changed their body or what they know to be true about nutrition or going to someone that they look up to or a family member and saying like you need to change so even with that it's like even if they're as they're doing the work everyone's kind of undoing it for them so they can set these really healthy boundaries they can advocate for themselves they can try to rewrite their story but ultimately until our society gets on this whole body acceptance movement these individuals are going to constantly having to be putting effort into rewriting their stories i mean and it pisses me the hell off you know i'm like do you want me to call your friend and bitch them out for you i'll do it i swear i'll do it you know and then i'm like that's not my work (laughs) and what's your inner narrator saying about that i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) i know it's not called that you just get so protective (laughs) yeah yeah no really it is it's it's hard to not be protective over right it's it happens i sit with clients all the time And, you know, they have important people in their lives that are supposed to support them. And I'm not, this isn't me again, not putting blame on the family or friends or anything, but it's, and they might not know any better right at this point, but it is one of those things where it's like the immediate reaction is like, Oh, I just want to protect you because, um, it is quite devastating of what our society says is like, this is it. And I mean, you see that even when you go to a doctor and it's like, we're the word health, right? There's a stigma on the word health because we know what's healthy and this is the perfect picture of health and you're supposed to fit into this. And so it's hard and it creates a lot of problems. I know. We know that discourses is a term that you use a lot in narrative therapy. So I'm curious before we launch into our next question, could you explain what that vocabulary term means? A discourse uh, would be, let's use like a gender discourse, but just to explain, like a gender discourse would be like how society views and values like women versus men if we only had two genders, right? Which I know we don't, 
but along lines of like women in particular. So the discourse would be that women are supposed to be passive, quiet, um, you know, not assertive. We're supposed to, you know, want kids. We're supposed to be the homemaker. So that's like what the discourse is. So what you're saying is that a discourse means kind of the traditional stereotype of that identity or situation. So with gender, if you're assigning, like I think of like kids, you know, it's like, are you doing a gender reveal? And then if you are having a boy, it's like you get everything blue and, you know, it's just listeners, you know what I'm talking about. Whereas like for me, I didn't find it out, find out the gender. And so people had a hard time because they're like, I don't know what to buy your baby. And I'm like, you could do anything. So really shifting them out of the stereotype and being like, there's lots of colors. A boy can wear blue blue and pink and purple and yellow and green, the, the whole spectrum of the colors, right? Right? And And I even love now, I'm going off on a tangent, but it's based off of what I'm experiencing currently. My son is obsessed with trucks and Spider-Man, neither of which we have pushed on him. But my family keeps latching on the idea of like, isn't it just amazing how boys love trucks? And I'm like, I I don't think we need to stereotype this human. But is it amazing that he is really obsessed with trucks? Sure. I mean, I think it's cool because his little brain is obsessed with something at almost two years old. But I don't think it has to do anything with him having a penis. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the reality of this situation. Anyways, I digress. And now we can move into the next topic. (laughs) No, but yeah. And also to kind of add to that, right? Like certain discourses are named, right? So like patriarchy, patriarchy is a discourse, right? The gender bias discourse, uh, anything else racism, toxic masculinity, all of those things, right? Those are all the the major discourses yes, that we face. That makes sense. Okay. Life. So then how do we internalize our outer discourses or stereotypes that are spread and or promoted by our families, cultures, and society in which we use to police ourselves in many ways? How is that problematic? The way we would internalize an outer discourse that is spread through our culture, society, and families would be the ways that we internalize our bodies, right? So I was actually recently listening to the Radical Therapist podcast, which is by Dr. Chris Hoff. It's my supervisor at the California Family Institute. And he was interviewing um, Hillary Canavy and Carmen Cool, where both Hillary and Carmen discussed how in this culture or society, our bodies are looked at as a problem to be solved, uh, which I found really interesting. Because one of the principles of narrative therapy is that the person is not the problem. And furthermore, our bodies are not the problem either. And so, as you know, bodies come in all shapes and sizes. And whatever the problem is, we live in a culture that privileges a certain particular body type and shape. So you can see how that preference is spread through any media outlet, right? Like sitcoms, the news, uh, Facebook, you know, TikTok, Instagram, all of the media. And so when we're measuring up to what society says, we end up comparing ourselves to whatever that marker is. And that's how we police ourselves, right? Kind of what we talked about a minute ago. 
And so each person has their own particular view as to what the perfect image is. And so as the therapist, it's my job to make visible that often invisible picture of perfection that people are comparing their own bodies to, which can be damaging. And if I can share a little story about myself, right? So in my first pregnancy, I remember at like the end of their third and third trimester going to the doctors and the doctor was, you know, passively expressing concern over, you know, oh, overweight, right? The baby's only going to be seven pounds. And, you know, it's those like little microaggressions that we're up against. And so even before birthing my child, I remember thinking like, I haven't even held him in my arms yet. And I already feel like a failure as a mom, right? Like I already feel like I'm failing at this pregnancy thing. And so that adds to the anxiety and that adds to the fear and that adds to everything. Like even it takes away from even having like a memorable birthing experience. And so it's just, it just like, it blows my mind that that is happening. And it's those messages are being spread by those that are supposed to be caring for us and those that we're supposed to really fully rely on, right? Like we're told rely on doctor, rely on this person. And it's just interesting how they are the ones spreading that message, whether they mean to hurt or not. Right. That's not right. It's, but it's happening. It is happening everywhere a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so it's those experiences. I think uh-huh. it breeds fear, like fear of not being good enough, fear of rejection, fear of not being accepted. But I'm also curious, this could be off topic, but I'm curious if it, you you find that those who spread the discourses are also operating out of fear. Sure. I, I imagine that so many of us are, right? I imagine, and I, not to get uh, into gender, but I mean, again, it's how society, like what they value in women, right? And their bodies. Like society says like, oh, you have a baby, you're supposed to bounce back. Mm-hmm. Like, look over here, this celebrity did it. I'm sorry, I don't have a night nurse. I don't have a private chef. I don't have like a personal trainer. I don't have all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, <laughs> it's just right. Or the genetic 1% that you happen to be born in. Right, where you're just like, I walked out in the same genes. Like, no, I'm sorry, that didn't happen for me. And it's interesting how especially women, we're, you know, what we're told, what we're supposed to look like. And that's like, and I love Instagram for many things, but, I, and I also don't, I, it also brings in fear and it also brings in, um, you know, it invites in like those stories of like, I'm not good enough because we're following, you know, influencers and we're following all these people that are like, oh, and I, I ate this for today. This was my menu, you know? And it's like, it's, it can be like damaging. It can be very damaging because it doesn't really, it doesn't, what is it called? It doesn't fit into, um, into what everybody, it doesn't fit to everybody, right? It's, it's speaking only to, yeah, that 1%. Yeah. I think, you know, you're speaking to the fact that like the 1%, okay, great. And even these celebrities aren't even that 1% or people with privilege. Let's not yes. even, I don't want to demonize celebrities. No, no. Hey, celebrities, we hear you. But privilege, where it's saying like, yeah, maybe you don't have the privilege to be able to hire a night nurse or have access to a gym or have 
therapy support to combat any sort of postpartum depression or our single parent or I mean shall I go on you know and so it's like what we are receiving the messages that we are receiving are that our story needs to be perfect and that we need to behave perfectly and that if we are struggling like you better fix that shit because there's no toleration for it right like and and that expectation is actually the 1% and everyone else is the 99 and that is the true normal. We just need to rewrite that story, shift our eyeballs to what actual reality is. Actual reality is the real struggle. Actual reality is sitting down and having roles and being softer because of a post-baby body and living in a body that society shows us is wrong like that that is the normal right like the truth is like our bodies are wonderful and not only are they wonderful but they can do really wonderful and spectacular things right doesn't matter what it looks like it can do all of these things and that's pretty amazing to me well i think that kind of brings us into the next question because you you identified the discourses and the stereotypes but and then you started talking about how we can start changing that narrative by talking about body function and et cetera. So how can our listeners do more work to deconstruct the discourses or problems that they're facing so that they can begin to construct their new preferred story? Yeah. So listeners can start by asking themselves. So these are kind of going to go into questions of what they can ask themselves, right, as they're facing these things. And so listeners can start by asking themselves the ways in which our society and culture views and values bodies. And again, in particular, right, female bodies. And I, I know that it sounds gender specific, but really we're up against a lot. And we, we have to acknowledge that. And so and so why does our society value a particular body type? Why do I, why do we value a particular body type? Who are we following on social media? Do the people that we follow or surround ourselves with align with our values? Or do they align with societal values? And I guess the better question to ask is, do I align with societal values? Right? So um, my favorite question actually comes from one of Wayne Dyer. And I think it can be used also as a journal prompt and also just in life, even on a daily basis. And it's, you know, who would you be if no one told you who you are? Right. And that really sticks out to me. So after deconstructing that, that discourse or that stereotype um, and identifying why and what it influences in their life and what areas it influences, which is a constant practice, right? It's not something that it's like overnight. This is something that I even constantly practice. Um, we can construct what we prefer, what we feel okay with. Imagining a life that would be, what it would be like if culture had less of an influence in our life over who we are and what we looked like. So I would encourage listeners and all of us to find a time or a moment in our lives where we resisted that cultural influence. What was that time like? Was that okay? How were you able to do that? What skills did you call upon that encouraged you to move forward? So recalling those times can help us deconstruct the dominant stories, right? Those problem stories. And then we can start to construct a new or what we call alternative story. Yeah, what would 
our body image be like if society didn't tell us how to feel about it, right? And we weren't constantly bombarded right. with these fake images because that's what they are. They're not they're not real people, right? They're actual humans, but their bodies aren't their real bodies. So like what would that be like? I feel like people's brains would literally open up and be able to contain so much more of other stuff. It would be beautiful. I think this is where I see food freedom come in. I think so many people find this food freedom when they're able to let go of the dominant cultural narrative about good and bad foods or healthy and unhealthy foods and all that. Also, people are really able to listen to their body and recognize their cravings, their desires, if they want something sweet or something salty and how much and how little. And like, this is where I find people go, oh my goodness, suddenly I'm eating. I enjoy it, and then I'm not thinking about it. And that's where people are finding the food freedom because they're letting go of that dominant culture narrative. I know, but then I have to come back and go, but when you live in a body that society and or people and or family or whoever else feel like it gives them permission that they can comment on that body and everyone's telling you that that that. body's wrong, it interrupts that. And the true freedom can't be experienced because – People are constantly telling them that they're wrong, even if they're trying to rewrite it. You know, it's like people can't see what you eat if you don't let them see it. Right. So it can be kept a secret of like, I don't know why you would want to, but like, oh, I'm intuitive. You know, I listen to my body, eat whatever I want, whatever. But people aren't always going to be commenting on it, whereas bodies, for some reason, People think that they can just offer advice, even as a pregnant person. Like people constantly were just like, I bet that that's a girl in you right now. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Get away from me. But that's a good question for you, Amber. Like people are doing the hard work in your sessions and they're rewriting their story. And then they leave session and they go home and mom makes a comment about the plate that they plate. So how do you help clients through the obstacles of other people not doing their work, even though they're doing their own individual work? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, at times, so say when someone's, if someone comes in and they're a minor, right, I often would maybe invite the family in because again, I think we're all relational beings and this therapy really would be beneficial if we had the entire family or the unit. I, and I say family, I don't mean blood. It doesn't have to be blood, right? It means like the, the important people in your life or the people that you might live with. And so, um, and then, you know, if they're not a minor and they don't want to invite those, right, they don't want to invite a partner or a mom or whoever in, then I would maybe start asking, you know, what would you call that thing that, um, that's happening for let's use the example mom, right? What would you call that thing that's happening for mom? That's maybe encouraging her to advise you in this way. And, um, I don't know mom, I don't know partner, but I'm giving the client the opportunity to kind of name that. So it's almost like, okay, so that's happening for her. And that's encouraging her to say like, to give advice as to what you should look like or what you should be eating. Um, Because those things are never going to stop, right? Even if it does stop within your family or the people that are important to you, society's not going to stop doing it. So it's kind of up to us what we can handle 
and how we want to take a stance against that. And again, it's just, it's a constant practice. I was just doing this last night with a client, like, what do you think mom's scared of? What is her fear right now? And once they're able to kind of put the problem back onto to mom and then also separate mom from the problem and that identity, they're kind of able to have like this oh, calming in their body that it ha- helps them sort through it a little bit differently. So all of a sudden, they're no longer the eating disorder client and mom doesn't see them as the eating disorder. Mom's actually just scared of her child not growing up and not thriving in life and et cetera, et cetera. We kind of help put the finger on that and, and, and separate it out. It's almost like three degrees of separation or whatever. Yeah, it's constantly separating. Right. We also have to realize that even these individuals that, you know, we are trying to project out or whatever, they also live in the same culture. You know what I mean? They're experiencing the Mm -hmm. same exposures and have their own biases and stigmas and struggles and whatever. I forgot what culture it was that I, when I was like reading into some stuff a while ago, but there are so many cultures that are not Western societies or Western cultures, right? That really value like women's bodies as they are or bodies in general as they are. And it's just so fascinating to me that in Western society that we just have such an idea of what perfection is and that we're all supposed to be living up to this. You know, I often wonder, like, I wonder why. And it is. It's such an oppressive system in that way. So if people want to know more about steps to take or even if they can just do a quick right now check of, ooh, how do I do this right now? Even if they can't dive into narrative therapy and right away. Like what, what are some good first steps for our listeners? So uh, I wrote down a couple, a couple like journal prompts. So uh, probably number one would be asking, again, asking how society values bodies, right? And asking, do I align with those values? And if I don't, what are my values? what do I want to value? Right. And so that, um, and then asking, you know, the ways in which perfection and societal ideas about body image has given you a less than worthy idea about yourself. So it's really kind of diving into, um, how that has added to the unworthiness that shows up for you. And then, um, again, asking that Wayne Dyer question, who would you be if no one told you who you are? And just, I think really just starting to crack open and come up with, again, that, that discourse or that stereotype. Do I want to live up to this? And why is it even there in the first place? Right? Like, that's like, that's the biggest (laughs) thing is like, maybe Mm -hmm. start asking ourselves like, why is that like discourse or stereotype even there in the first place? And who is it serving? For the person that's not a journaler, I don't like journaling. Um, I, yeah. well, that's I the thing. Yeah. I think really it's just taking the space and actually thinking about it. And I'm, um, I'm one of those individuals that like, as I speak, it helps me. Like if I were to just like sit and quietly think, I'm like, I've thought about 400 different things, you know, but to keep myself on track, I'll maybe record myself and like just talk it out and whatever. And then you could listen back and be like, oh yeah. So like, that's my form of journaling. If someone were to actually tell me like, you have to sit and write this down. I'm like, shut up. I won't. 
I will do it. So (laughs) just find for the listeners, it's like find your own way that actually um, can do that work. Maybe it's through art or um, I don't know. You know, I'm not a therapist, but you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we all learn, take from, do different things that would elicit these thoughts. Right. And so some people really love homework. I don't. I homework brings me back to being a kid and I'm like, absolutely not. And so, but you know, some people do and it works. And so journaling works for them. I'm someone that I like to sit with somebody and run through all of my thoughts, like all of the deep societal thoughts, you know, and for that in quarantine is my husband. And he's looking at me like, okay, (laughs) you know, are we, but it's like, that's, that's how I get the information in. Right. So it just depends. It depends on you and how you want to learn and how you want to take in that information. So listeners, so you know, we're going to include all of these journal prompts that Amber shared, as well as some of the questions we'll be asking our uh, interviews and our guests this season on our show notes. If you want to do some of this work, head to our website. But I also would love it if you could speak to why it would be important for someone to spend the time to write out their body story, like their history and their timeline of who said what and what societal discourse impacted them here and what that would be like, like what what healing would come from potentially writing out the story from the lens of narrative therapy as well. Yeah, so that's a good question. So um, I'm going to back up a little bit about writing the story. And I am going to come back and say, absolutely write your story because it's just like telling your story. It's impactful in the way that you get to look for the moments that are not okay with you, right? Like even writing it and going back and saying, do I still feel this way about this story, right? Like it, are my preferences included in this story that I'm writing out? And so I always like to say, it's okay to rewrite over and over. It's all, we're never, um, there's never, never an arrival point, right? And so it's okay to go back and do that. But also a huge part of narrative therapy, which I could have mentioned earlier, is letter writing. And so um, let's say shame or anything else that comes up for you, right? So writing a letter to shame can be super impactful for healing. And just the way it's impacted your life, the way it's infiltrated your life. And so that can come as well with writing your story, writing a letter to the problem that's showing up for you, perfection, shame, whatever it might be. I have clients write a letter to their body and then have their body write a letter back to them. Yes, exactly. That dichotomy there often. And personally, I wrote out my birth story. I had a very traumatic birth with my first child and I wrote out my entire birth story. I mean, it was like nine pages, single space, like, but it was the most healing thing I've done because as I'm looking at it, you're right. I looked back and said, was I okay with that? Or wow. When this person said this, I fell under this discourse. I even realized I was falling under and that impacted me or what it was like to be this. And just writing that all out and then, and highlighting it and pulling stuff out. That was the most healing thing. I literally spent a couple days doing it, processed it with the therapist. And I moved on just from that single story writing element. Now I know it's more complicated for lots of other things, but I just want to say that like spending the time to write it out, looking for those discourses, looking for the the external constructs that have impacted your belief system or the core beliefs that developed as a result is really helpful. 
Well, and how beautiful is it that you can write it out and it doesn't have to be refined, right? Because again, when we're speaking to a friend or whoever it might be, your birth story might come out filtered. It may or may not, or you might leave some things out. So the fact that you can put it on paper and not have to leave anything out, not have to police yourself, not have to filter anything, that it's all there, that can be very healing. Cool. Well, this has been great. Can you... To kind of wrap it up, can you tell our listeners where they can find you or? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so I am working at the California Family Institute at in Costa Mesa, California. And so I have a website, which is ambercramertherapy.com. And so you can reach me on there and it has my phone number and everything. Um, so I myself work along with a team of really great narrative therapists. So if you ever need anything and we do offer, um, we do offer sliding scale. We do, you know, it's a, it's a clinic that we want to share therapy with everybody. We believe everyone deserves therapy if they want it. And so, um, yeah, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was fun. I appreciate it. If this episode inspires you to look at writing your own story, then yay, we did it. (laughs) We would love for you to join us by doing your own work of reflection and healing. We recommend that you carve out some quiet time, reflective space for writing, or other ways of processing, and answer some of the journal prompts that we will be posting in our show notes on momjeansthepodcast.com. These will include a list of sample narrative therapy journal prompts along with a list of the questions we will be asking in our interviews this season for you to begin your reflection process. Yeah, so go check out the website and just so you know, some of the questions are going to be along the lines of this. What is the story about healing your body? What are some of the most important experiences you had in your body that changed your relationship with it? What is your story of breaking your family legacy and how are you trying to rewrite your story? How has your relationship with your body and your body's story been impacted due to your race, culture, or gender identity? What is your why for healing your relationship with your body? And what is the greatest lesson you have learned about body acceptance? As always, feel free to email us at momjeansthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, your thoughts, or your questions. In addition to our weekly episodes this fall, we also started a blog section on our website, Again, it's momjeansthepodcast.com, where we have listeners who wrote in their stories of healing. They are beautiful, detailed stories of struggle and liberation, and we encourage you to take a look. This blog will be updated as more stories roll in, so feel free to share your story with us, and please know that it can always be anonymous. Don't forget to subscribe, because then each episode will launch automatically and go right to your phone. And please rate and review us on iTunes so that new listeners can find us. We're so grateful for each and every one of you and hope this season brings you peace, freedom, and increased awareness of your body story. See you next time. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LeBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. 
You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.